Well, uh, lazy bones that I am, I thought we could, instead of having a separate Sunday school on a separate topic, I thought it would be uh, uh, easier, uh, hopefully uh, uh, fruitful and focused, since we have this on our mind, to then focus, uh, uh, to uh, use this time to focus in on uh, some of the smaller details or other implications or uh, outworkings or uh, anything that was perplexing or particularly interesting uh, to, to, to you all. Uh, so I, I wanted to start, if we might, with uh, a question by our sister here. And maybe I'll let you say it again, if you don't mind, uh, nice and, if you don't mind speaking nice and loud for the sake of the folks in back. You mentioned in the sermon that mm-hmm. there are alphabet letters of a particular liberal university that discredits the history of scripture, and I just wanted to, can you go more into what that is? Yeah. The, um, Charles, can you restate the question? Restate the question. The question is, um, it has to do with the JEDP theory, which is the uh, documentary hypothesis, and the whole question of source criticism. Those, none of those words may mean anything. Uh, to you, but I want to. We'll talk about a little bit about that. The um, if you step back, I, I think one of the one of the most helpful uh, disciplines in any subject is to look at any particular subject from an historical point of view. I mean, whether you're talking about costumes or architecture or poetry or anything, you can look at it historically and it helps put everything in context. So one of the things I think is quite helpful is not only the history of doctrines. So for example, you think uh, some people worship Mary as, as uh, have, having been conceived immaculately, that she had no sin in her conception, right? But it's very helpful to know that that doctrine only was approved in the Roman church in the late 19th century. That's a really quite recent doctrine. Are we together? So it gives a perspective on the doctrine. But the the history of the interpretation of the Bible itself is is a helpful discipline. So how did people read the Bible in various Old Testament periods? How did the apostles read the Bible, read the Old Testament? That's Obvious, we have that in the New Testament. And then how did 2nd, 3rd, 4th century Christians look at, look at the Bible, etc., etc., etc.? Are you with me? Okay. Now, can you give me a... When the church goes off the rails, tell me how, why that happens. Uh, maybe I'm looking for a, a needle in a haystack, but this is really not... A, not, not it's, it's a pretty obvious point. What, what pushes the church to go off, off the rails... At, in any particular age. Of course, different ages have their different concerns. Spe- speculation, okay, good. But what pushes, why, why would it be pushed here or there? Excuse me? Oh, okay, that's true. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's true enough. I mean, I, I'm opening a can of worms here. Not be... <laughs> yeah, but what will push? Okay, let me ta- let's take it. What is the modern, what, let's start with today. What is, what is the, 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 the heartbeat and thrust of our modern culture, and where is it pushing against the churches today? What are the big issues? Uh, inclusiveness? Not, okay. Okay. Uh, true, true. 
is, I want to, let, let's focus on the sexual questions. Issues of sex and gender, I mean, can you not, can you turn on the radio and listen for an hour without issues of gender and, and sexuality coming out? It's a kind of a hyper-individualism expressed in, you know, I may look like a uh, 56-year-old male, but I'm actually a 14-year-old uh, gir little girl. You know, I mean, I'm being, having a little fun. <laughs> having fun here. I'm having some fun. But now, this is... <laughs> This is dead serious, right? So where, where is the world going to push up against uh, Christian doctrine? Surprise! It's, it's this, on these points, right? That's where it's going to be a problem. So are you familiar with the word zeitgeist? Zeitgeist, German, means, it means the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age. So there's always a zeitgeist in every age. And that's where the challenge is going to be for the church. So, for example, back in, uh, in, uh, in, in Ger the German churches in the 1930s, what was the zeitgeist in the in, under the National Socialists? Nazism, right? And what did they, so what, what, was, what, were the, what, were the, what was the pressure against the churches? Hate the Jews? conform? It was all about race, 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 right? What happens to the Old Testament? Out the window. What happens to Hebrew study? Out the window. You know, I'm, this is, we're, I'm serious. This is dead serious under the Nazis. People lost their positions in academic universities because they stood up for the Old Testament as a, as a Christian document, right? So again, it's the zeitgeist. Okay, let's step back. So we have the we have the Renaissance and the Reformation, which we could see kind of together as kind of go back to the texts. We have the, we have the ongoing Protestant uh, Reformation and the times of renewal, so in the 16th, 17th centuries. But as we move into the 18th and then particularly in the 19th centuries, what are some of the winds that are blowing in Western thinking? I'm thinking Europe particularly. We are the heirs of uh, kind of European culture, mostly here in the New World. Um, the Enlightenment. Okay, so the, the Enlightenment is the big thing. So what is the, now there's good and bad Enlightenment, but what is some of the, what is the zeitgeist of the Enlightenment? So we're thinking, you can think in terms of the French philosophs and Voltaire, you can think of the, the, uh, the German Enlightenment figures, but what, what are some of the, the wind that's blowing with the Enlightenment? What are the, some of the, what is the passion? What is being sought? Let's, we don't want Outside authorities, don't give us, that's certainly one thing, don't give us a holy book that has authority. We don't like that, okay? Okay, we have the beginnings of this, this, this individualism and, 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 and autonomy, good. Other thoughts? This is a huge topic unto itself. We could spend a lot of time on this. There's a focus on, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, um, uh, a humanism. It's, there's a focus on man, on the human being, and then there's this sense of human beings being good. Yeah, don't give us that old doctrine of uh, depravity. that We've got to get beyond that. And then, of course, okay, and then in the 20th century, we see how the whole thing falls apart with all the wars in Europe just... You know, there is total there is total depravity after all. Anyway, any other thoughts in terms of the zeitgeist of enlightenment? Like 
What was, Dick, what was Descartes' famous dictum about how he was going to start his philosophy? I think. Okay, so, so now think about that for a second. Cogito, ergo, therefore, sum, I exist. I think, therefore, I exist. What is, he, what is that? Where is he placing all his eggs? What basket? His self. It's all about me. I'm going to start with self-consciousness and that's it. He's going to take a complete skepticism on everything else. So that's the rationalist. We call that rationalism. It's all about, you know. And then what's the, the other way? Kind of the Hume way or the um, scientific way. It's empiricism, right? What? I won't believe anything except what? That I can, that I can, that I can prove it or I can experience it, right? So we have this rationalism and this empiricism, right? But it's all about what? Autonomous human thinking. It's all about, forget the Bible, forget Revelation. It's all about what I can prove, what we can prove. And then you get this science, you know, it's kind of science becomes the new religion, etc., etc. Okay. So one, if you take that spirit, what's it going to do to biblical studies? If you come in with those kind of, if that's your, your zeit, if that's your spirit, what do you, what's, when you come to study the Bible, what, do you, what are the results you're going to get? What, <laughs> those other concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts? Okay, that's true. That's true. Other thoughts? Disre- what do you mean by historical? That's true, uh, but now that is a universal temptation, uh, including for preachers, right? You, we want to be unique, and we can't say something uh, um, well-worn. True, true. Other thoughts? Yes, so we're coming with it. We're coming with doubt. Basically, we're going to secularize the Bible, is what happens. Everything gets secularized, right? And we're going, to, we're going to look at the Bible from a purely secular, unbelieving, critical, uh, naturalistic point of view. Do you catch naturalism? In other words, we, don't, we no longer believe in miracles, right? We are, we are enlightened Europeans. So when we see a miracle, it must not, that's not literally what happened. It must be something else, right? So can, can you see where we're at? The, the real issues are on the presuppositional level. It's what, where you start your approach to the Bible. That's where the, that's where the issue... If you start from a... I know this... I'm going to come to this as a, from a secular, naturalistic, critical, uh, skeptical point of view. Well, you're going to get certain re- results. Are we together? Okay. That's all by way of background. To... Um, in the late... Uh, in the... In the late 18th century, and then uh, getting a lot of steam in the 19th century, we have uh, we have a, a documentary hypothesis. So, how many creation stories are there in Genesis? Are you say one or two? Okay, there there we are at the issue of right now. Okay, so some people just say, well, obviously there's two. Obviously, they contradict. And one uses one name for God and the other uses another. So therefore, what, what, what conclusion can we make from that? 
they must be two different sources that have been stitched together kind of clumsily into one source, right? And you're highlighting the tensions between them. Are, are we together? But now, is that the only way to look at Genesis 1 and 2? You can see there, there's an assumption. There's all kinds of assumptions behind reading it that way, right? And as you get deeper, you'll see that the whole issue of the, the name of God and what's going on in one has a different purpose than what's going on in two, etc. It's, it's, there's a total harmony, right? But this is just an example of some, they talk about the, the, the J-E-D-P. The J means Yah, the Yahwistic, that's German for Yahweh. The Yahwistic versus the Elohistic, that's the E. Yah means Yah for Yahweh, and E for Elohim, which means God. The Deuteronomistic is what, of course, the perspective of Deuteronomy. And then the P, J-E-D-P, what is the P source? The priestly source. It's interesting that this text here, there was a lot of debate whether Genesis 23 was priestly text or not. And there was a lot of people, of course, it's a priestly text, da-da-da-da-da. And then, and then, but when, supposedly, when does the priestly text come from? A lot of this has to do when, when they see things as, as things being written. When is the, when is, uh, which is the last, I'll tell you, the priestly is the last of the sources, and when does the priestly text come? Does anybody remember that? From, from Old Testament 101 at the you know, University of Shan you know, at the Second University? It's post-exilic. It's after the exile, right? And so, um, so then, there, then if you accept that, if you say this is a priestly text, it's after the exile, then you're going to read this from that point of view. Are we, are we together? All right. But in the last, uh, the, the problem with that, there's a whole series of problems with that. Uh, one thing is that these customs, as we find out more about the Middle East and about the history of uh, the history of the Middle East, these customs that we're seeing Abraham engage in totally fit with the beginnings of the second millennium BC. Now, so when did Abraham live? 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. That's a long time ago, right? But now, unlike 200 years ago, we actually have documents that come from that period and even earlier than that. And lo and behold, guess what we have? We have real estate transactions, right? And we have Hittite, we have a bunch of Hittite documents. And lo and behold, one of the things that takes place in the Hittite uh, 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 real estate documents is what? Enumeration of the, the number of trees on the land that you're purchasing. Now, isn't, now you could say that's irrelevant, but isn't that interesting? So that doesn't prove, whether, you know, it's, you know it, it, it just shows that, that that this is a very, it doesn't, it, it shows that this, this, what we're reading here is very much fits ancient Near, ancient Near East, and it's, it's totally believable that this kind of interaction took place between Abraham and the people of the land at, at that time. All right, so I guess what, I, that where, where I'm getting off track and getting ahead of myself here. The, the point is that the JEDP, which was dominant for over 100 years, is now coming on hard times. Because it's like, well, what, what good does it do you to say this is from the P rather than from another, uh, the other source? I mean, how, what, how does that help you understand it? And then in the last 30, 40 years, 
there's been more of an emphasis on literary interpretations. And then, as I tried to show in the sermon, 23 is totally, it's, it's, it's part of this package of the end of Abraham's ministry and life. So we have the 12, his brother has 12 sons, we have Sarah's death, we have the getting of a substitute matriarch in the next chapter with uh, Rebecca, and then we have Abraham's death, and then it goes on. So it's, it's very carefully crafted. And that's what I was emphasizing, and having, uh, I was skewering uh, the liberal perspective on that. Because I, I tell you, it, that one of the assured results of scholarship for over 100 years with the, was the JEDP theory. I mean, it was totally dominant. If you, if you went into a university for, for a job for, in biblical studies and you said, I don't believe the JEDP, they, you'd be, they wouldn't even look at you. Oh, you're a fundamentalist. But now, that, you know, that's being over, overturned now. So... Uh, it's, it's worth mentioning. And our, and our young people, as they go off to college, will still get that kind of stuff. So. And you see it in the, I, I watch a lot of Christian documentaries okay. about and you see that almost an atheistic perspective on how they interpret, because you think this is Moses' history, and you're like, oh, cool, I'm moving on. And all of a sudden, they start criticizing whether even Moses actually yeah. existed. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's very, it's like a downer. Yeah. You have to turn it off. So yeah. Yeah. It comes from that yeah. perspective. Well, if they, if they question whether Moses existed, or whether David existed at 1000 BC, Moses at 1500, of course people think of Abraham as mythological. But it doesn't, uh, those theories of Abraham, uh, and we could go into more detail, but uh, th those are getting more and more undermined. It's, th this, this is a, and this story is one example. This is a, it totally fits with the, uh, uh, the customs of the day, and it, 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 it helps explain the ancestors of the, uh, uh, of the people of Israel in a very in a credible way. This is not a myth. I mean, why would you put this in a myth? It's way too detailed for a myth. Um, you know, it, it, it's significant. I'm not saying it's just historical detail. It's historical detail that preaches, of course, but that doesn't mean it's non-historical. So let me, let me go off very slightly on one other thing. Maybe this is uh, unhelpful, but, um, you know, the Hittites, uh, we didn't know much about the Hittites in, in, until the, the 20th century. There's a, lo a lot of Hittites uh, uh, stuff has been uncovered up particularly as you move towards Turkey, up in northern Syria and then in Turkey. And the, Hittite, um, the Hittites had its, had its big, uh, um, had its uh, heyday after, after Abraham's time. And so the question is, what kind of Hittites are these? And just to say, the, 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 the movement of peoples in the Middle East is a bit of a complex question, even as it is now. I mean, what's happening in Syria right now? How many, how many Syrians and, and Iraqis do we have here in, in San Diego County? I mean, thousands and thousands. Why? Because they got, you know, that kind of same movement of the peoples has been happening all along. So it's, it's a little bit odd that, that a Hittite is named Ephron, uh, the son of Zohar, because those names, Ephron and Zohar, are Semitic names. They're from the, and, the, and, the, and the Hittite people that we know about later are... They're uh, Indo-Europeans. They're, they're a different ethnic group than the Semites, which are the main uh, Middle Eastern. So it seems that the Hittites here in the Hebron area 
are a group that's separated off from the larger Hittite, uh, the, northern, the northern folk, and then the, the, the Hittite kingdoms that were in, later on in, uh, in Syria. So anyway, when you turn on the, the news and you hear about Syria and all the troubles, it's, it go, these things have been, they're very old, these old different groups you know, with different uh, uh, you know, str- struggles. Oh, let me tell you one uh, personal thing. Um, we were in, uh, on the Israeli uh, border up in uh, the Golan Heights. Here you have, here's the, the Palestine and the Sea of Galilee, and then the Golan Heights are as you go towards Syria, right? That's that, on the road to Damascus, Paul was converted somewhere in there. So we're, on a, we're in an Israeli bunker about a mile from the border, and there's Syria, and the big, you see the big, uh, the big valley in front of you, and, the, and Mount Hermon on, the le- Hermon on the left, and then others on the right. And we're standing there, and all of a sudden, someone starts shelling. And a brave man that I am, I was immediately on my knees, you know, kind of, because the bunker was only up to here. You know, you only were covered up to here. And it turns out that the Free Syrian Army was shelling Al-Qaeda across the, across the way. And the fellow, that, the, uh, the intelligence officer that was with us, said, pointed, took his finger and pointed out five different groups that you could see from that vantage point. And I said, that's not a country. Those are warlords. And it was just, it was just so sobering that they have these different factions. And, but that's, you know, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and the, you know, Canaanites. These are, it's, it's been on, going on for a long time. So, other questions, comments? Along these lines or other, other, other lines? Great. Uh, well, first, uh, I'm not an Islamist, so I, I'm not an expert on that, this subject. But the, Muhammad obviously had, he knew a lot about the Bible, and he knew uh, uh, something about Christianity, probably through uh, some non-Orthodox uh, Christians. He knew Jew, he was in, connected with Jews uh, early on, and then later he turned against a Jewish group. But um, so there's a lot of influence from the Old Testament in, in the Quran. So uh, it, Abraham is given a high, he's considered a prophet, and he's one of the prophets of God, and is give, given a high and honored place. Um, Arabs consider themselves traditionally to be the sons of Abraham through, uh, through Hagar, through Ishmael. So there's a, they, they see him as their father uh, figure as well. So um, it's interesting also that the, the, the mosque that was built on Abraham's tomb, how does it, it's the, uh, it's something like the, the tomb of the exalted one. I could have that wrong in what it's called in Arabic, but it's, it's, it's in his honor there. They tried, they've honored him in, in, in building him a tomb on that, on this, the Machpelah. So if you want to, if you want a, a contested site, if you go there, the, the Israeli army is, has an outpost right there. And it's, I mean, it's very, it's very political and very contested in the last, you know, 40 years or so. So it's, there's a lot of tension. So anyway, what's new? Questions?
big, a big topic, and I feel uh, somewhat un, uh, unprepared to answer it in a full way. But the answer, I'd say, is yes. And we as, as Christians, I mean, even, even if, if we accept the, uh, the Pentateuch, you know, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, as from Moses, that doesn't mean that Moses didn't use, didn't put together source, different source documents. We see plenty of evidence in the Old Testament of sources that are used explicitly. It says, you know, you, uh, basically, if you want further information, go to the book of the days of the Chronicles of the Kings or the book of the Kings of Judah or the, or the book of Yashar or the book of the Wars of the Lord. There's lots of books are actually mentioned that uh, we don't have anymore. So there's lots of sources are men- mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes they're not mentioned, like in the sections of Proverbs that are clearly taken from Egyptian uh, wisdom texts. Um, surprise! I mean, this you know it doesn't. We, we, so there is in no way are we we're not committed. We don't believe uh, that the Bible just kind of dropped down into Moses' hands straight from God, as did the Ten Commandments. It says that you know the ten words are that's how you know God gave him. You know, here you go, but not not the whole thing. So he's using, clearly he's using uh, traditions and texts, written or unwritten, and we don't have to. So that, that, that's a good question. It, 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 you know, we're, if we see similarity of stories and we can ask, and there's, there's, there, is, uh, uh, there, are, there are a number of insights to be gained, asking those questions. But we just have to be careful uh, not to discredit what it's saying based on, it's, it's, the problem is it's hypothetical. You assume something and then you base interpretations on your assumption. Well... If you had an actual document, that would be a different matter. So, so for example, uh, the issue of the invasion of the Assyrians into Jerusalem in around 701 uh, BC with Isaiah. You have Isaiah, you have uh, Kings, and you have Chronicles. You have three biblical documents that all talk about it from a slightly different angle. Then you have the Assyrian materials, and you have the Egyptian materials. So you have a lot of and archaeological material. So there's a lot that goes into that one thing. And if you're careful, it shows that it's, it was a historical event and, and it, it, it's, it's, uh, you can understand what happened more or less at that time. I think it's later, but it's, you can see it's similar, similar impulse. Well, it's, it's looking for, a, a, you know, kind of a, a sayings. The, the, the Q means quella, which means source, kind of a source of Jesus' sayings. Um, but you can see that the, the, the fundamental question is the same, looking for what are the sources behind the four Gospels? Yeah, the same question. Please, I think that's sufficient on these topics. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, let me ask first, what, why, why have we changed, do you think? 
Why, why has there been a shift in the Christian, in the Christian community toward, away from burial and towards cremation in particular? Or maybe, maybe I should ask, maybe, and again, I think we will probably see that it's not, that the, 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 the thrust of it is something not particularly Christian. It's, from, it's a societal change. But well, let's start there. Why, why the changes, do you think? Okay. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, where... Who practiced cremation in the ancient world? Most famously. The Greeks and the Romans, right? Before they became Christians. Right? Achilles, you know, Achilles' friend, etc. The, the, the cremation was, was, was very deep amongst them. Uh, in terms of the Western, of course, in the East, in Hinduism, etc. So, so I'm thinking in terms of Greeks and Romans, there's that, there's that profound dualism where you have the spirit, which is good, and the body, which is irrelevant or evil or not, not, it's just not relevant to spiritual living. And then that, that, that does uh, encourage a, a, a different attitude towards, towards the, the, the body of a dead person. Not to say that they didn't, they, they did want to honor their dead, but uh, it, it was a different attitude. I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting to say how, how much of the change is a different, is a different worldview coming into play nowadays in our society. Again, I don't have an answer to that question, but I did want to raise it at least. It may be uncomfortable for us to think about, but why, why have we made this change? Other other reasons. Let's stick to that first. Why why the change, Madame? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're we're practic we're all prag- pragmatists, right? And whatever is the, the most the cheapest way of getting something done is a big appeal to us. And I, I think that's I think that's a major appeal, a major reason. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm sure. Those are those are real issues, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sir. Okay. That is, it, you know, some of the outworkings. Yeah, that that is not un, that's not uncommon to bury the urn as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is anyone is anyone amongst us a, 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 an undertaker, perchance? I know at the New Life Congregation, there's a brother who's an undertaker there, and uh, um, yeah, I, I I think it's a big deal. Okay. That sounds very almost traditional Jewish, where you have the that you sit sheva, you sit with a body, and then very quick. Traditional Jewish and Muslim, uh, there is a quicker 
you don't wait three weeks and you, you yeah, and that that's another issue, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Good. The I think you'll notice in the sermon I wanted to be careful. I I wasn't uh, what I was. I was speaking in favor of burial, just as an act of, uh, of honoring the dead in the hope of the resurrection. And I was emphasizing that that's, a, that's been by far the dominant Christian pr- uh, practice of tr- the treatment of the dead. So that's all I was saying. I raised, it was, it was interesting, well, I'll, I'll mention that there was only, there's one instance of, of cremation in, in the Bible. And... Uh, and it's the instance where uh, you remember that Nahash the Ammonite goes up against uh, the Jabesh Gilead and he wants to gouge out their right eyes. Do you remember that? That's a story for teenage boys to remember. Uh, and uh, who saves the men of Jabesh Gilead? The new savior, the new Christ, Saul, who, if you go back a uh, generation from the book of uh, Judges, who he's a he is a uh, he's from Benjamin. The men remember what happened to the men of Benjamin, they, right? They they defended the, that terrible uh, uh, the the gang rape of that of the, of the woman, and and they all got slaughtered except for six hundred of them, right? The whole tribe was basically slaughtered, and then the which is just it shows the, how terribly uh, degenerate the whole society was at that time. What did the men of Israel do for the, for the men of Benjamin? They went and took the, the, all, the, the women from Jabesh and they gave them to the men of Benjamin to be their wives. I mean, this is like, it's just, it's just bizarre. The whole thing is just like totally wh- whacked out. Well, here is, here is the later uh, descendant in Benjamin who probably has a Jabesh connection in his family. When he is anointed to be king, what's the first thing he does? He goes and saves Jabesh from the Ammonites. Do you remember that? That's just Saul's, the, the climax of Saul's uh, 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 messiah, messiahhood. Well, then when Saul goes through his ups and downs, uh, mostly downs from that point on, and, and when he's killed by the Philistines fighting in the great, um, uh, in, the, in the valley of Estralon, it's, it's right there by Megiddo, and it's kind of the great battlefield of the ancient world and of the biblical world. That, that's kind of why I would say we, we talk about Armageddon being connected with that area, that, that breadbasket between the hills of Galilee and the, and the Sumerian hills. That when, he's, when, they, when the Philistines kill him, or he kills himself because uh, he realizes he won't escape, what do the Philistines do to him? They crucify him on the walls of Bet, uh, of Bet-Shan, which is at the end of that same valley. They stick his dead body up on, 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 the, on the walls. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead come by night and take down his body and take it back and they burn it and they, and they fast. So anyway, um, it is a, it's, I mean, uh, it's, it's, they are trying to honor him by doing that, but it, it, I would argue that, that you can see that the Philistines obviously had control of Beth Shemesh, that they could do that. That whole area was so thoroughly 
uh, under the influence of uh, uh, non-Israelites. And if I could just add one more uh, little word. I, I had a chance to do an archaeological dig in Beit Shemesh, and we were digging at the level. You know how it works in these ancient cities, right? The lower you go, the older it gets. So the farther down you go, you get to the older stuff. We were right around Saul's, where I, the pit where I was digging was right around Saul's time. And this Japanese brother and I, we discovered a flask. A little, it's a little thing for containing liquids about this big. And it, you know what it had on the side? It had a, it had a picture of, a, uh, of, a, of a, a, vine, a vine on it. And it turns out it was Philistine. It was Philistine. The whole orientation of the little thing was Philistine. Now, this doesn't prove, I'm not trying to say this proves that this, that, that, you know, that this is completely dominated by the Philistines. But the, it's surely the case that the Philistines were dominant and their culture was very prevalent in that, in that area. And uh, in my mind, it's, not a, it, it's no surprise that they would practice Philistine or uh, Canaanite burial customs, including uh, you know, cremation. That's the point. It's probably, it's not coming from the Israelite tradition. It's coming from the Philistine or Canaanite tradition. So, anyway. Okay, so now the issue's on the table. Did anyone want to uh, talk about any more opinions on the matter? Or, I know it's a controversial question. Uh, I don't mean to cut off discussion. We haven't really kind of got into it, but. I probably, I mean, it's popular. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure, I imagine so. It is interesting, and we can leave it. it. I just, I guess, my purposes would be accomplished if we're asking the question about it. It's interesting that, like in Rome in the first century, the practice of the Romans was was cremation, whereas the practice of the Christians, as you know from the catacombs, was to, was was burial. So, some, for some reason, in their minds, that that not not putting the the body to the flame was an act of setting it aside in the hope in, in this particular spot in the hope of a re, in the hope of a physical resurrection and the Jews before them had the same practice so it's worth thinking about in like uh, I, in India traditional Indian society oh oh wow okay Intact. Intact. Right. No, we're, there's no, we're not, we're not arguing that uh, one can't be resurrected if they're not buried. That's not the argument. 
You thought I was? No, no. That's a great illustration. Great. Other other issues? Or Come, uh, and, uh, thoughts? Time gone? Time's gone? Let's ask, that's an interesting point. Interesting point. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I mean, the, the first century churches didn't have graveyards. I mean, they had, you know, but it, it evolved. Throughout the Middle Ages, you had that. So it wasn't just a Puritan practice. Uh, of course, in the new, in, if you go east, there, there's a lot of that in the, in the East Coast, there'll be a graveyard near the church. But as we move west, less of that. And there's practical considerations here. With, you know, land costs so much. But how'd you like that? About 400 shekels. Huh? Wasn't that interesting? All right. Shall we stand? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your work through your servants in and around and blessing your servants like Abraham a man of like passions and weaknesses as we are. But thank you for the promises you gave him. Thank you that you enabled him, despite his many failings, to walk in faith. And we do pray that you would strengthen our faith in the resurrection to come, that you've promised us wonderful things and that we don't have to have every last bit of uh, pleasure and security and affirmation and peace uh, in this life. But we can live peaceably, humbly, with our neighbors and, and, and uh, even face our own death and the death of our loved ones in great hope. Lord, be with us this day and bless us as we come back together to worship you this evening. Bless us, Lord, as we go through this week and give us strength uh, to, to live in hope, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you.